Well, hello, and welcome to AOPA's Pilot Information Center podcast series. Our topic for this podcast is obtaining an FAA medical certificate. This episode is brought to you by AOPA's Pilot Protection Services. For more information, you can visit their website at pilot-protection-services.aopa.org or just give us a call at 800-872-2672. That's 800-USA-AOPA. And press option 2 to reach our Pilot Information Center for more information. I'm Ferdy Mack with AOPA's Pilot Information Center in Frederick, Maryland. Joining me today for our FAA Medical Certificate podcast is Gary Crump. Gary is AOPA's Director of Medical Certification. Well, hello, Gary. Hey, Ferdy. How's it going? Very good. Glad to have you here. Of course, uh, glad to be here. Here, <laughs> here and there is not much of a difference. Gary really? and I uh, actually sit right next to each other here in our offices at headquarters in Frederick, Maryland. But we do have a wall between us. <laughs> we do. We do. Uh, but we'll, we'll get on to that, actually, because uh, at some point I'll bring that up, because I do overhear some of your conversations with our members. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that may not be a good thing. Well, the uh, point being, uh, we hear a lot of common, not just questions, but a lot of common errors. I'm almost using the baseball metaphor. Uh, an error where a member really should have said X, but instead said Y, just because they didn't understand completely either the wording or the intent of some of the questions on the medical application. Yeah, the, the FAA medical application um, has always been a source of, of friction and complaint, uh, especially among aviation attorneys who represent clients who get into problems with the FAA on a falsified, inadvertently otherwise falsified medical application. And even to this day, uh, the uh, Government Accountability Office just completed a uh, an audit of uh, FAA's aeromedical certification practices and had some comments about the application and the complexity and the, uh, even though they didn't say this in the report, there are some landmines you can step on on the application and uh, in, in, in the process of being completely honest or what appears to be completely honest, that can uh, create problems for you. So there, there are a lot of things to pay attention to. It is a, a federal legal document and it's the most important thing to remember because even though you do it electronically now, once you have uh, signed it electronically, you're disclosing and, and certifying that all the information that you provided on the application is true and accurate to, to the best of your knowledge. So we'll probably get into that here in the next few minutes. Okay, good. Uh, you mentioned electronic, so how does a pilot go about starting this process? There's no more paper now, right? Uh, actually, that is correct. As of October of 2012, almost two years ago now, the FAA went to an electronic medical application uh, to be in compliance with other federal regulations including the Paperwork Reduction Act and uh, a couple of executive orders by the President to um, move toward more electronic filing of the medical applications. So um, it is now, it's called MedExpress and you can access it through the FAA website. The paper form that uh, you used to fill out in the AME's office on the clipboard right before you went in to see the examiner is now uh, obsolete. So the only way you can complete an application is with the online form. By So that means you have to have access to a computer, um, set up an account with the FAA, and complete the application. And then on all your subsequent medical renewals, the basic information, the demographic information, is already going to be pre-inserted into the form going forward, but you still have to make the, uh, the additions to the medical history section, the uh, medications, and the visits to health professionals. 
section, which we're going to talk about here in the next few minutes. So this sounds like it's just time-consuming enough that this isn't going to be something I could expect to walk into an AME's office and complete, either because they won't have a computer necessarily for me to do it, or because I might not have all my information, and it's going to take me a while to input, input it all. Exactly, and that's that's one of the issues that, that AOPA had when we found out that uh, the plan was to mandate the, the online form. Actually, by making it electronic and, and going to the electronic version, it really is eventually going to make this, the entire FA certification process, medical certification process, a lot more efficient. It's going to eliminate errors because MedExpress form is just smart enough to recognize if you have inadvertently overlooked one of the required items or if you put in incorrect information as far as the formatting, it's going to ding you on it and you won't be able to submit the application until it's true and complete. So that'll eliminate a lot of the, the processing errors that the FAA has to deal with. And it also um, will make it easier for your AME to input the information into the, it's called the Document Imaging Workflow System, which is part of the Aerospace Medical Certification Subsystem, which is AMCS, which is what the AME uses to input your information into uh, into the FAA system. So uh, it's, it's a lot of internal internal benefits, but a lot of the the external issues that pilots had, biggest one being is that for pilots that don't have computers that are not really PC savvy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it creates a, a bit of an issue because they either got got to access a PC through uh, a public library or through a family member, or there are some AMEs out there that are willing to accommodate their pilots and have a have a, an additional, an extra laptop set up somewhere in their office and uh, for, for pilots that go in there unaware that it's a required uh, uh, to be done online now, they, they've got a, an accommodation for them to actually complete the application there in the, in the office. The, it's not totally convenient except that once you've submitted an application, of course you're going to get a confirmation number which is the number that the AME is going to use to bring your application up from the system. And it's going to be, that that confirmation number is going to be sent via email back to the applicant as, as confirmation that the application has been received. So even if you're doing an application in an AME's office, you shouldn't have to wait more than just a few minutes for the confirmation to come back with that number, and so you're not going to be delayed. But it is, it is a hassle for that very small percentage of... Uh, of pilots that just um, aren't aren't comfortable with a computer, and we recognize that, but we also recognize the benefits of moving forward with an online application. Application, so that's why, generally speaking, AOPA was supportive of the move to to the electronic format. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But of course, it doesn't sound like any airmen should expect to be able to walk into the AME's office and have a computer to use for any reason. Definitely not. Right. Definitely not. You really need to, as, as, as we always say, you have to be proactive and do your homework before you actually get actually get to the AME's office because otherwise they're going to get they're going to turn you away and uh, you're going to be an unhappy pilot because you didn't get your medical and unfortunately uh, it's the pilot's responsibility to know what know what's required to submit the application. So just be be aware and uh, do your homework beforehand. Okay, very good. So let's uh, let's delve into some of the questions that are in this application process on, on the FAA website on MedExpress. Uh, some of the questions are, as you said, demographic and, and fairly straightforward. What class of medical certificate are you applying for? What's your date of birth? Height, weight, 
how many hours do you have? And by the way, that's that's just like an FYI piece for FAA, right? Cause well, yeah, you're right. That, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but no. uh, that that is more. It's a demographic data field because it does provide the FAA with some information about the total number of flight hours being conducted in general aviation. But it's also a benefit to pilots um, because sometimes things happen and we lose our logbooks. They're consumed in a, in a in an accident or they're lost in a move or otherwise disappear. And uh, if you're keeping an accurate accounting of your total flight time and particularly most your recency of experience in the last six months, you can use your last FAA medical application to go back and reproduce a new logbook and uh, the FAA will accept that as um, as a basis for verifying that that time is accurate. That's great. I didn't even consider bringing that in for, for this particular podcast, but uh, on occasion that is a question we get here at the PIC. Hey, my flight bag, including my sunglasses, worse yet, my headset, and worse yet, my logbooks were all stolen out of my car. How right. do I go about reconstituting my situation as a pilot and my, my uh, proof that that's I right. have certain... Know, endorsements and how many hours I have. And so that's that's good to know that that's one of the pieces that, that can help rebuild that and reconstruct exactly. the logbooks. That's great. Okay, so let's uh, let's focus on the, the medical specific questions on the form. So we'll start with question 17, 17A. And 17A reads, do you currently use any medication, either prescription or non-prescription? So what are they looking for there and what are some of the pitfalls? I'm, I'm I'm kind of amazed, really, at how many pilots call us and and after they've gotten a letter from the FAA <clears throat> indicating that they reported on their medical application a medication that is not considered acceptable for aeromedical purposes. And in the in the course of the conversation, we find out that the pilot hasn't used that medication for over a year, and for whatever reason, it still showed up. On, on medical records that uh, the airman was providing in support of the medical application. And that's actually an important point to remember. Uh, you need to reconcile with your family physician or your treating physician because many of us have more than one doctor and sometimes those doctors don't always communicate very well about the medications that they're prescribing and paying attention to what medications the other doctor may be prescribing for a totally different different set of, of, of medical conditions. Mm-hmm. So you always want to make sure that information that you're providing to the FAA in response to a request for information or in support of a medical application, that that information is, is correct and accurate, certainly with respect to medications usage. So the question is asking if you are currently using any medications. So if you were taking um, a, a medication for reflux disease, for example, and you've modified your diet and you're no longer on that medication, then it's no longer reportable on the application. Now, it still may be reportable under either Section 18, the medical history section that we'll talk about in a minute, or uh, Section 19, which is your visits to health professionals. But for the purpose of the medical application, uh, specific to 17, item 17, the FA is only interested in the medications that you are taking currently on a regular basis, and that's you know, make a note that that is both prescription and non-prescription. So you can be taking an over-the-counter medication as well, and that also applies to certain herbal uh, uh, supplements that uh, are pretty common right now too. But the, the 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 thing to remember about a lot of the nutritional supplements is that 
those supplements are derived from the same plants that pharmaceutical drugs are are derived from. So the FAA does have a concern about certain types of nutritional supplement that could have aeromedical implications uh, that would that would contraindicate that supplement use for uh, for uh, flying duties. Mm, okay. Uh, so you mentioned if I were on a, a medication for uh, reflux disease. So let's use another example. Let's say I go to the dentist, and, and we're going to talk about the dentist also when right. we get down to uh, visits to healthcare professionals. But I go to the dentist, and I have a root canal. They put me on pain medication for a few days. And a week or a month later, I, I go and apply and need to fill this out. So that would be another situation where that medication, for all intents and purposes, would not be listed? Absolutely. The only only caution there was obviously to abide by the regulations, specifically FAR 6153, because if you are prescribed um, Tylenol with codeine, for for example, for uh, uh, for post-op pain after your dental visit or any surgical procedure for that matter, you would certainly not not want to be flying for uh, some period of time, and uh, you know, that period of time is really um, determined mostly by the dosage of the medication, the specific medication you're taking, how often you're taking it, your body type. But generally speaking, the FAA um, rule of thumb is that you observe the dosing interval for a particular medication and wait five times that dosing interval after your last dose before you exercise your privileges. So in the case of a dental visit where you got, uh, you know, you got a five-day uh, prescription for uh, Tylenol with codeine, um, just don't fly during the time you're taking that medication, and then once the pain is over and you're not having any, any post-op problems and you're no longer on the medication and you have a current existing medical certificate, you can uh, resume exercising your privileges after you've been off the medication for the appropriate time. And uh, you said five times the dosing interval. We've, we've tried to explain that numerous times, but just one more time. So that would be if I'm told to take this every four hours or as needed, so it would be four times five, four hours times five dosing intervals Correct. for 20 hours before I should at least start to consider being able to fly again. Correct. Okay. Correct. We can probably do a, a whole little mini podcast on uh, on medications and, and flying and uh, because that FAA is really interested in the issue of medications in, in uh, aviation accidents right now. So it's, it's a real hot topic right now, and that's why we um, try to cover medications at least briefly on um, on our webinars and uh, certainly in our phone conversations with members that call in with their medical conditions. We always want to talk about medications that are being used in concert with that diagnosis and treatment. Sure. I did also want to bring up uh, two different perspectives that FAA might have on a given medication and whether or not its use by an airman is allowable or not. One is the idea of Let's, again, go to that idea of pain medication, narcotic side effect. It's pretty obvious why FAA would, wouldn't want you to be flying under the influence of, of a medication like that. There's also this separate notion, however, of something that might lead down the road of off-label use, where FAA says, okay, well, you're on this medication, and we understand it's for this condition that we're not concerned about, but the problem is that medication might be ordinarily prescribed for a serious condition that prevents an airman from flying. So it's not just the straightforward medication side effects, but it's also FAA's uh, interest in the fact that that medication might uh, might be prescribed for an underlying condition that is of concern. Right. Uh, you, you've actually swerved into a couple of points that we need to talk about. Uh, and let's just talk about the FAA's policy on medications, uh, generally speaking, from the from the top down. 
recognize that <clears throat> the FAA is the is the aviation regulatory arm of our federal government. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration is in charge of medications, medical treatments, medical devices, and all other things in, involved in that in that spectrum of the government of the government regulatory process. So the FDA approves medications for use by the general public. However, the FAA allows those medications on a case-by-case and on a medication-by-medication basis for, uh, for use in the national airspace system. So once an FD, uh, FDA medication is put out on the market, it's approved and allowed and has been on the market for one year, only after one year will the FAA begin to look at the medication and look at some of the literature and data that has come into the FDA since that medication was approved a year ago to see if there were any unanticipated complications, any issues that came up after the medication became available to the public at large as opposed to the much smaller group of clinical trials that were done while the drug was being investigated pre-approval. So once the FAA is satisfied that um, the FDA did its job appropriately and uh, there are no bugaboos associated with, them, associated with the medication, then they will consider that particular medication for aviation duties. The other side of the coin is, uh, and we'll talk about the off-label use in a moment, but the other side of the coin of uh, FAA's interest is the underlying condition for which that medication has been prescribed in the first place. So it's always a two-sided coin. The medication may be an issue because of the potential for adverse side effects in the uh, uh, even at relatively low altitudes for general aviation flying, but the other con- the other issue obviously is the underlying medical condition and the risk for sudden or subtle incapacitation that the FAA has to evaluate as well. Uh, on the issue of of off label use, um, kind of the same thing applies. It's the underlying condition, but as a as a policy. Uh, policy position, once the FAA has determined that a medication is inappropriate for aviation duties, it really doesn't matter what the medication is being used for. Um, An example of that is uh, a drug called gabapentin, which is actually an anti-seizure medication, clearly uh, prohibited by the FAA because of the concern about the underlying condition that could result in seizures. But gabapentin is also used off-label for uh, um, a condition called peripheral neuropathy uh, can also, I think I've seen it used for restless leg syndrome. So even though, and, and those, may, those conditions may have subsequently been reviewed by the FDA and placed on the package, the labeling of the, pa- of the medication so that it's an on-label use, but if it's still off-label, it doesn't matter. The FAA still considers the medication from its perspective with respect to side effects and once they've determined that it's inappropriate, it doesn't really matter what you're using it for. It's still going to be a disqualifying medication. Pretty complicated, but... <clears throat> it is a little complicated. It is. And it's, it, the whole issue is further complicated by the fact that um, there are so many new drugs coming to market right now. The Food and Drug Administration is really approving a lot of medications. We see that... Uh, particularly in the area of, of oral and injectable diabetes medications. Uh, we have a, an epidemic of diabetes in this country right now, primarily associated with the epidemic of obesity in our population, 
which is a, a whole discussion in itself. But as a result of all these new medical conditions and the increasing prevalence of medical conditions, the pharmaceutical manufacturers are, uh, are, are going crazy formulating new medications to treat people's conditions. So there are a lot of diabetes medications that are, that are being reviewed by the FAA now. Uh, they have just, the FAA just relatively recently this year created a new chart for, uh, uh, for the airman's use in determining what medications are acceptable in, uh, in tandem use with other medications. So that, it, it, again, that's an example of the complexity because the FAA is concerned that certain diabetes medications can interact and force one's blood sugar lower than it really should be creating a condition called hypoglycemia. And we don't want to get too much in the, in the weeds on that, but the, the thing to understand is that the FAA pays a lot of attention to medications. There are a small group of physicians at the, in the Office of Aerospace Medicine in Washington at FAA headquarters. Part of their job is just to review new medications as they come to market and after they've been FDA approved for a year to see if they would be appropriate for, for aviation duties. So to the FAA's credit, they are looking at these medications and trying to find ways in which they can be safely used in the national airspace system without creating problems. But uh, there are still there's certain medications out there that are just never going to be allowed, and uh, that's just the way that's just the way it's going to be because of the underlying side effect profile and the underlying condition for which the meds are prescribed. Sure. Okay. Uh, so that's medications. Uh, block 18, moving on on the medical form, is related to medical history, and there's some bold language there. Have you ever in your life, that's, that's issue number one there, right. been diagnosed with, had, or do you presently have any of the following conditions? And there are uh, about 20 boxes there, and you simply check yes or no. So you'd think that simply being asked, for example, yes or no, frequent or severe headaches would be simple, but... Sometimes the fact that it's simply yes or no actually might complicate things and make it more difficult for the airman to determine what the appropriate answer might be. Exactly, and this is one of the, the issues that the, the critics of the, the current medical application have had over the years is that the, some of the questions are vague, they could be perceived as vague, ambiguous, potentially misleading, um, and creating you know pitfalls for pilots to inadvertently fall into. Um, in my, in the seminars that uh, that I've done over the years, I use as the example when we talk about medical history. Um, once you, if you fell out of a tree at Grandma's house when you were six years old and you you had a mild concussion, or even if you were briefly unconscious, you now have a lifelong history of unconsciousness, and that's one of the questions on the application. It's uh, the third one down: unconsciousness for any reason, even though it happened, you know, 35 years ago it's still a history and that would make it reportable on the application. The other point is once you've checked yes to a question, again because of the understanding about medical history, once it's a yes, it's always going to be a yes from that point on. Now one of the the features of MedExpress now, the online medical application, is if you've reported a condition on a previous application, you don't have to type in in the explanations box the reason for the visit uh, this is a condition I had before. There's actually a, a, a box that says PRNC, which means previously reported, no change. So any anything that you've reported on your past medical applications that you're just report, re, reporting again per requirements and have not changed, just click on the PRNC box and it'll autofill 
uh, into the previously reported no change text and then uh, you can move right on to the next question but uh, there uh, this one section of the application probably creates more potential problems for for airmen who are just inadvertently uh, may inadvertently be falsifying their medical application another example of the non-specificity of the application that's really created some interest here just in the last couple of years is in the on the area of sleep apnea because that, that is a disqualifying condition and it requires a special issuance under current FAA policy however there's not a question on section 18 that specifically asks about sleep apnea how about that yeah yeah the uh, the closest thing is item X, which is kind of what I call the catch-all oh, question uh, that asks if you've had any other illness, disability, or surgery. So if you've had anything else that doesn't apply in any of the other boxes, you can check check yes to item X and then provide an explanation. And that right now, that's that's where you would report your history of sleep apnea, and hopefully it's being treated and you've got all your documentation. And uh, again, we could do a little mini mini seminar on sleep apnea right now but that policy is still in review by the FAA but uh, it is still going to be a disqualifying condition that requires a specialist going forward so if you didn't get anything else out of this podcast and you're being treated for sleep apnea remember it is reportable under item X on the uh, medical history section and to give us a call give us a call here we definitely can discuss the yeah. situation oh yeah you. definitely it's an easy problem to take care of but it's you know it's one of those that if you don't have all your paperwork in hand you're going to get deferred and then be without a medical for several months probably until they all get it sorted out. So uh, to be fair uh, as far as where the FAA sets the bar I wanted to just bring in some of the uh, additional information from the the guidance on how to fill this form out to just illustrate that FAA number one they're not looking to catch you on any of these boxes and subsequently end up in a situation where they won't give you a medical. Uh, For example uh, there's a note that says, do not report occasional common illnesses, such as colds or sore throats. So what FAA is really saying there is their tolerance for reporting here is not a requirement that everything and anything be reported. And we'll illustrate that with the, the uh, business to healthcare professionals as well. Right. Uh, so in, in my mind, they're really, they're, there's a bar that's set. It might not be as high as every airman might like, but there's a bar there. It's not zero tolerance. And it's not as all-inclusive. And, and when, when, when the FAA starts going down this road, I mean, they, you really, you know, it's almost a slippery slope because if they're telling you you don't have to report colds or sore throats, that really doesn't mean those are the only two things that you don't have to report. True but they're not well. going to tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 the issue for the FAA is those conditions that are considered aeromedically significant. Now, unfortunately, the FAA doesn't consider that us, the average Joe pilots out there, to be able to determine what is aeromedically significant unless uh, we are maybe AMEs or we have a board certification in aerospace medicine or otherwise privy to how the FAA does does its job of reg- regulating the, the national airspace from a, the aeromedical safety standpoint. So it's almost like... Why even bother to put that on the instruction sheet? And we are referencing the the um, instruction sheet that sort of gives you a one or two sentence description of what they are looking for on each item of the medical application. And uh, it, it it is helpful, but is certainly not uh, all inclusive and 100% 
beneficial for uh, for some types of situations. But that's one of those where they are being specific, but it just opens the door for all a bunch of other things that are equally unimportant from an aeromedical standpoint, but just aren't mentioned in the in the list of things that you don't have to report to the FAA. Right. Maybe I had a uh, a chin lift or some sort of. Cosmetic surgery. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe that would fall into that category. Uh, maybe it, it might. Word. Except when you get to section nineteen, right. which is where you report to visits to health professionals. Right. And again, the the instructions on the uh, on the MedExpress application are not all inclusive. In fact, uh, the instructions uh, with respect to item nineteen just says you know list all visits in the last three years to a physician, physician assistant, nurse practitioner, psychologist, clinical social worker, or substance abuse specialist for treatment, examination, or medical mental evaluation. Now, that's a fairly small group of, of, of health professionals that they consider inclusive, but that doesn't, that doesn't include, for example, dermatologists, uh, even though they are physicians. But sometimes a dermatology visit is basically just, especially if you live in the in the southern the southern latitudes in Florida, uh, it's probably a good idea to get, check in with your dermatologist periodically. But it is a visit to a health professional, so it is reportable on the on the application. Uh, how about chiropractor visits? Uh, that's considered a healthcare uh, healthcare professional as well, but it's not one of those that is specifically listed uh, in Section 19. So. Um, Again, the FAA is giving you a few of the things that they expected to report, but it does not does not cover all the bases. So again, there's a po- potential for misinterpretation about what the FAA is actually looking for on that uh, on that section of the application as well. It sounds like we're making things more complicated for everyone <clears throat> as opposed to less. But again, we are here to help you with those with your questions when it comes to whether or not you should. Re- report uh, a, condi- a certain condition, a certain situation, a certain doctor visit, etc. Uh, you know, my, my, the thing I'm trying to bring in here is FAA doesn't want everything and anything necessarily. And I think what Gary's trying to illustrate is, well, if that's the case, what we're left with is, well, it's never very cr- clear exactly what to put up. Put exactly, down. exactly. Yeah. Let's go back to um, um, your family physician, because hopefully... Uh, recognizing that AOPA is in the midst of trying to get significant relief to the third-class medical requirements for pilots that are flying certain types of aircraft and flying recreationally. And if that happens, and we think it's going to happen here one of these days in, in some form, the burden is going to be on us as the pilots to make sure that if we're not having to go to an AME periodically for a flight physical, we're going to be seeing at least our primary care physicians for hopefully annual routine physical examinations. So family physician visits are still reportable on the application, but getting back to the, to the, to the note on the instruction sheet is you don't have to report common illnesses such as colds and sore throats. Family physicians are seeing a lot of people for allergy problems, asthma-related conditions now. We're getting into the fall now, into the cold weather season. We're going to start seeing more uh, flu, colds, sore throats, the whole spectrum of upper respiratory infections. Those are all considered routine office visits to the primary care physician. So 
when when you're filling out the application and you're reporting your your routine office visits to your family physician that's the way you should report it and provide um, your reason or the explanation for the visit the FAA is going to recognize that if if the physician you're seeing is a primary care family physician that's sort of the gatekeeper for everything else so if you're not being referred out to a specialist for some specific condition as a cardiologist or a nephrologist or a neurologist and your visits are confined to your primary care visit for routine annual physical exams or routine office visits Mm -hmm. i.e. colds and sore throats the FAA is not going to ask any questions about that at all so not only is the is the physician visit important but the reason for the visit is also uh, uh, something that FAA is going to pay attention to so make sure you you're very clear in your reporting requirement is the, the the reason for the visit as well as the specialty of the of the doctor that you're seeing. So the, the reason it's not quite the get out of jail free card but it's Correct. the justification. It's me saying I went to Dr. Smith just like I do every year for my annual physical. I also went to Dr. Smith a, a month later for hay fever treatment. Right. And in right. either case, does FAA really even bat an eye when those things are listed? Usually not. And if there is any question, the AME should at least note it and, and ask you about it. You know, well, you know, you saw Dr. Smith several times. Is he your primary care physician? And if that's the if that's the answer, then that should be uh, basically no basis for not issuing the certificate at the time of the examination. So I wouldn't uh, worry too much about that type of visit. Just one other little little tidbit generally speaking we covered a lot of territory here in the last few minutes but generally speaking if you are reporting something for the first time on the application with respect to a new medication a new medical condition in item 18 section 18 of the form or you're seeing a physician specialist other than your primary care physician um, it's always a good idea to have something from that physician a brief status note indicating why you're taking medication X and the dosage and frequency, uh, the nature of the visit, it isn't always required. But as a rule of thumb, you know your AME better than we do. So the, the AME is the primary gatekeeper. He or she is going to make the initial, in most cases, make the initial certification decision. And if your application or anything that is that happens during the course of that examination leads that AME to be concerned about whether or not he or she can issue you a certificate, if you got some type of documentation from your treating physician that substantiates what you're reporting on the application, that will often tip the scales in your favor and give the AME the latitude he or she needs to go ahead and issue the certificate to you right in, right in the office. Let's go off script just for a second and, and, and talk about, I think, what are the only three things that could likely happen during your visit to the AME, especially for the new folks or folks who are just coming into new conditions in life. So we could walk in and then walk out with them with our medical certificate in hand. So we've been issued. And about 90 to 95% of pilots that apply for medical, that's exactly what happens. They're fully qualified and they're issued a certificate in the office. Okay. So let's go down the road. If I neglected to bring along the supporting documentation from my specialist for a new condition, and the AME is concerned whether or not he should he or she should issue me a certificate. I won't be issued, but what, what would happen then? The FAA allows an AME to hold an application for 14 days. That means that if the AME says, look, 
you're qualified, everything checks out, except you recorded something on your application that I need some additional documentation on. Hypertension is mm-hmm. a perfect example of mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. There's a worksheet, and we maybe we'll do a podcast on the on some of the conditions here that uh, allow uh, that uh, can be issued in the office under uh, what's called a conditions AME's condition, a khaki condition. But hypertension requires some basic information from your treating physician. What medications you're on, if you're on medications, the dosages and frequencies, and then a couple of three blood pressure readings showing that your blood pressure is actually under control on that medication. So if you go into your AME's office for the first time and you check off the box uh, on the application, which is item G, uh, I'm sorry, item H, high or low blood pressure, and you report that you're taking blood pressure medicine, the AME is going to have to have a report from your treating physician before he can issue the certificate. So if you don't have that information, the AME can hold that application in the system without doing anything with it for 14 days. That gives you a chance to get back to your treating physician, get the worksheet completed, get the information the AME needs, if everything checks out within that 14 days, then the AME can go ahead and issue the certificate to you in the office. If for some reason you clearly have a condition that's going to require review by the FAA, you, you don't have any of the documentation you're going to need, you're going to have to have some new testing done, the AME is not going to be able to get that information from you within 14 days. So the AME then has to defer the application to the FAA, which basically means that the AME is punting he can no longer, he or she can no longer use his authority to issue the certificate. It goes to the FAA for review, and then you're going to get a letter back from the FAA asking for additional information to determine if you're qualified for a medical certificate. The third option that most AMEs do not exercise is uh, the uh, authorization to actually deny an application outright. And that is done very infrequently, mainly because AMEs just don't don't want to mess with the paperwork involved in it, and the fact that there there are only 15 mandatory disqualifying conditions that the AME could outright deny an application on. Those 15 disqualifying conditions, though, can be ultimately issued under what's called a special issuance authorization, but those authorizations have to come from the FAA. So again. The AME, when you walk in on an application with which you clearly don't meet the medical standards, the AME will probably just defer the application, and that puts the responsibility on the FAA then to determine what additional records the, the airman will need to provide in order to establish the eligibility and issue a certificate under a time-limited special issuance authorization. And really, one of the undercurrents there in my mind is <clears throat> this, this whole idea of whether or not you might be deferred have your medical application deferred to Oklahoma City for review or even to Washington, D.C., uh, is something to be avoided because it takes time. Oh, so yeah. if it's as simple as whether or not you were able to obtain a letter documenting your your hypertension, your new hypertension situation and walking into your AME's office with it in hand, there's a big difference between being able to walk out with the medical that day and ignoring the 14-day period in which you can provide if you had to wait longer and had to go to Oklahoma City, you might be sitting on the sidelines for months when you're looking to fly or maybe first solo. So it's it's definitely something to be avoided if you can. Yeah, yeah, definitely, and that's that's a really good point. If you're a student pilot out there and your, your CFI has not been bugging you yet about getting your medical certificate, 
don't wait until your CFI tells you, well, I think we're going to solo you in the next few days, because you can't do that without a valid medical certificate. So if you have not made it a priority to get your medical early in the training process, um, you need to you need to shift your priorities and go ahead and get online, get your application completed, and get in to see an aviation medical examiner to make sure you're going to be issued a certificate in the office. Because if you're ready to solo and you don't have that, that third class or higher medical certificate, the uh, CFI is not going to be able to sign you off for your solo, and um, you're going to end up you know, continuing to fly dual well past the time you, you should have been soloing until you get that certificate in hand. Absolutely, absolutely. Mark, Gary, anything else you want to throw into the pot here before you sign off? The important thing is, as AOPA members, you have a great uh, a great resource available to you here in the Pilot Information Center, and uh, we, I, I consider us ambitiously lazy around here in that we would much prefer dealing with your situation before the FAA ever gets involved in it. That way we can get you started on the, on the right direction, make sure you've got all the required documentation, do what we can to make sure you're going to get issued in the office or with minimum delay uh, if it is a condition that requires FAA review uh, versus you make an application to the FAA, haven't done any of your homework, don't have any idea what's going on, and then you get this letter back from the FAA asking for a whole laundry list of information. Then you call us, then we have to get involved in it after the fact and kind of clean up the mess, so to speak. Uh, It's better to do everything right the first time and make sure you've got everything that you need before you ever make the application and see the AME. That way, you start out on the right track, you get all the information in, and in many cases, the AME will be able to get you certified in the office right there on the same day that you go in for the exam. Absolutely. Uh, you know, first time I walked in with a clean bill of health and checked no to everything and signed the form and didn't have any prior visits, it seemed trivial. But as we start to age and we have to start considering checking yes on some boxes, yep. and by the way, of course, checking yes on one of the medical history boxes doesn't mean a deferral. It doesn't mean a denial. doesn't mean you still won't walk out with that medical certificate. It just means you might have to provide some information. That's right. You just got to do a little more work uh, to get to get what the FA is going to need or what the AME is going to need. Absolutely. To our listeners, thanks so much for joining us. And Gary, thank you so much for your insights. It's always uh, very enlightening. It's a pleasure. Right. pleasure. That's what we're here for. And on that note, if you have any aviation-related questions as part of your membership, do give us a call here at our Pilot Information Center. We've got a combined number of about 15 staff, including medical specialists, flight instructors, aviation finance experts, and uh, digital product support specialists, among other things, just to name a few specialties here in the Pilot Information Center. And we're here Monday through Friday, and you can reach us at 800-USA-AOPA. That's 800-872-2672 and press option 2 on your phone to get to us. Or, if you wish to dial straight to the medical specialists, you can press 3, by the way. Or you can email your questions to us at pilotassist at aopa.org. And finally, don't forget to check out our website as well at www.aopa.org. Thanks, we'll see you.